child left to himself without discipline is ruined, you know? And the scriptures say in Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates their children. Now that little phrase, spare the rod, spoil the children, that's actually taken from that verse, although that verse is, uh, doesn't say exactly spare the rod, spoil the, ch- the children. Many verses say that throughout Proverbs. There's so many uh, scriptures that talk about how children are ruined if you don't discipline them. And, you know, that Satan's done a really good work of trying to get people not to discipline their children because he wants our children to run after the broad way that leads to destruction. Amen. So it's imperative that you discipline your children in love, uh, not, you know, beating your children and, you know, uh, leaving just, you know, abrasions and marks and stuff like that, but that you discipline your child in a godly way, uh, you know, uh, even to this day, you know, uh, you know, i I disciplined my children, you know, gave them some swats in the rear end with my hand sometimes, and sometimes, uh, you know, I, I disciplined my children, not just with the hand, by the way, you know, I definitely uh, had used something very mild, but at the same time, it got their attention. I wouldn't go beyond four or five little swats, but by the grace of God, they turned out great. A child left to himself that doesn't get disciplined, you know, if, 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 realize, if you, you grow up learning there's no consequences, and, and spanking, by the way, is not the only way to discipline your children, but it's one of the effective ways that the Bible talks about. So we can't say, well, our reasoning is better than God's. No. We see what's happening to our society now since Dr. Spock, right? And very liberal-minded, came against spanking and so forth. And on the heels of him came, you know, the 60s and what have you, all that stuff, you know, basically coalesced all these doctrines and stuff, ideologies and philosophies of do your own thing. It feels good, do it. Don't spank your children. Free sex, all that stuff just brought all these diseases and just this havoc. So, but at the same time, guess what? Uh, you know what? My mom hasn't spanked me since I was 27, you know? No, no, she hasn't spanked me uh, since, uh, man, I love my mom and she did a good job disciplining me and so did my dad. Uh, my mom was more methodical. My dad was just quick, whip you around, man, whip his belt off, you know. Remember one time, it wasn't the whipping that hurt so bad, but my head hit the ground. And you know when your head hits something, it goes zzz, I don't think I felt the spank because my head was going zzz, you know. And finally I came out of that. I was like, ooh, man. And I remember one time my mom spanked me and I stuck a book back there, a real thin little child's book on my rear end. I lined up and she got the switches off the... Hi, Mom. I know she's live, live stream. You were great. I turned out way better than I would have if you didn't do that. Uh, and she's whipping me. She didn't do it a lot of times, but I'd go get a switch. If your switch wasn't good enough, she'd say, go get the switch off the tree, another one. And you try to cut those, break those little tiny things off because those little things kind of, little, little pecker marks, you know. So, and, uh, man, and I remember it hurt worse because on the rear end, I couldn't feel it. But when the switch went around and it didn't cover my rear end in certain areas, just those little areas stung so bad. I said, okay, no more book, you know. I'd run up on the house or in the roof watching my dad look for me. Or I'd run in the backyard and my dog would protect me. And then my dad would back down. Uh, but you know what? My mom poked me out of the, she had to, mom. You're a great mom. I'd hide under the bed, you know, and she'd get the broom out trying to get me out, you know. And uh, I remember running down the street, and Barry, he's like, you know, probably like 19, 20, and I was like 9 or 10. He's like, there was a dog show, a dog TV show called Run, Joe, Run back then, I think. And he'd be like, Run, Joe, Run! <laughs> you know? 
So yeah, I wasn't the greatest kid. I needed discipline, and uh, God used that along with other things to bring me to himself, I believed, you know. Uh, but you know what? The Bible says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. That, and I love that. They're careful to discipline them. That means they're careful to make sure they discipline them. But it also means we're, they're careful how they discipline them. A parent who does not discipline the child because, well, it says they hate them. And the, the proverb is basically saying it might as well be like hate because you're not, you're not loving, it's contrasted with love. You're not loving your child enough to take the time out to discipline them and to be careful in how you do it. And be careful how you do it to make sure that they uh, understand there's consequences to rebellion, but also to make sure you don't hurt your child, you know? I'm talking about in some kind of, you know, lasting way, you know? And it's the people that don't discipline their kids that finally they, they get so fed up, then they freak out and abuse them, you know? And that's really tragic. And there's millions of murders and things, thefts and rapes and molestations and all kinds of things that take place because kids never learn consequences to the rebellion. And that's very, very serious. So, but spare the rod, spoil the child. Spare the rod, spoil the Christian. God also disciplines us. So when I said, hey, there was a time where my parents didn't discipline me anymore. Well, guess who takes up that discipline? God. He disciplines you even when you're a child, you know, in ways we don't even know and understand fully. But when you become of age as a believer in Christ, a truster, and become a child of God, he disciplines you. And, and it says, you know, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. God loves us. You want to see that. That's why he disciplines us. And I said to you recently, uh, he first speaks to us. If we don't listen, then he spanks us, you know. And you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we're a race that sets before us and we're supposed to run it with endurance. Because the Christian walk is not a sprint. It's a marathon, amen? And he's picturing this cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, you know? And the witnesses testify in regard to the lives they've lived in the context, this comes on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that? The hall of faith chapter, right? The hall of, you know, biblical fame, these great saints that went before us, where it says they all died in the faith. In other words, they finished their marathon. And they're witnesses. And sometimes, you know, it's debated as to whether they're witnesses in regard to leaving a witness in the way they live their lives, or they're witnesses meaning they see what we're going through. And you know what, that word, and I've actually done a word study on the word witnesses there, and you see how it's used in the New Testament, sometimes it means to be a witness in how you shine the light. But other times it's used as a witness uh, uh, of, of seeing something. It talks about the, the disciples being witnesses of, in the context of witnessing that Jesus rose from the dead and not just speaking it out and so forth. So actually it could be both, and I believe it is both because the context here is what? A race that's being run the Olympics of the day, right? And when you would see witnesses, you know, 
If you use that in the context of a race, you would think of people peering. And I do believe they're witnesses. Not that they see every, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, the saints in heaven in Revelation chapter 6, crying out to God, how long to avenge our blood on those who live on the earth, right? They're, they're, they're watching what's going on to a degree. They're, they're, they're co communally, as the souls that are under the altar who have died in the faith, collectively having one voice about what's going on, you know. And you remember Elijah and Moses came to discuss with Jesus what he would go through at the cross. They're very attuned to what's going on here uh, uh, with regard to uh, the, the race of the saints. But that's something I'll we'll get into deeper when actually we get into this, a, a full-blown study on that, uh, on those first few verses there. But it's interesting. He says he wants us to lay aside, we're commanded to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because sin can take us out of the race. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9 regarding his own walk with the Lord. And we'll talk about all those things more deeply. But when he disciplines us, it's so we let go of a life of sin. And we don't go back to a life of sin. Very, very important, guys. Very, very important. The key, verse 2, is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despises his shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So our main focus is to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the main witness, amen? And he certainly is a witness in two ways, right? He's a witness in that he went before us. He confessed a good confession, Paul says, before Pontius Pilate. He, he uh, endured. Uh, of course, Jesus was absolutely without sin, but he's an example because he lives in us and will empower us to live a life as much as possible uh, without sin. And we're supposed to, but he's also witnessing that he's cheering us on, amen? And now he's not just cheering us on, he's strengthening us, he's empowering us, he's enabling us, amen? And that's so beautiful. And verse three, for consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So he would not warn us to not grow weary and lose heart if it was not possible to grow weary and lose heart, okay? You could grow weary. There's a few times we read in Paul uh, where in Galatians it talks about, uh, you know, be not deceived, God is not mocked. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. This is in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. But he that sows the Spirit will reap eternal life, and we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So he's contrasting destruction with growing weary and not continuing in the race, because Paul talks about that race in Galatians 4, 9, 4, 8, 9, and 10, and he talks about how they, who, about them being hindered by going back to the law of Moses. And he wants them to finish that race, but he doesn't want them to grow weary and go back to the flesh. And here, again, we see this concept of growing weary and finishing the race, and then in verse for you have not resisted the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now they haven't yet resisted the point of shedding their blood. Now he's writing to Christians and I have no doubt he's writing to Christians. You know how I know that for sure? Because he talks about how they're babes in Christ and they need to go beyond being babes and they need to be at the point where they can teach and go beyond the elementary things. And he uses all these expressions that are obviously anywhere else you'd say are to Christians, but because some people don't like the strong warnings in Hebrews, they want to say, oh, well, he's talking to those who are almost Christians. 
No, he's talking to those who are babes in Christ. And he's giving them warnings so they will persevere. That's one of his means of perseverance. Just as we'll see, discipline is a means that he uses for us to persevere. These are all things that we ought to preach. You know, Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, he wanted to cut James out of the Bible, you know, when he first put his can together. And he called, he didn't like Hebrews either. He called it, you know, uh, called James an epistle of straw and said that, that the book of Hebrews knows nothing of the gospel. What? I think Hebrews is one of the most beautiful books about Jesus, comparing him to, you know, better than, better than Aaron's priesthood, right? Better than Moses. And then when you say that to Jews, Hebrew Christians are like, wow, you know? Better than angels, worshiped by the angels. Amen. And it talks all about his shed blood for our sins. What are you talking about? In fact, you think Luther would love Hebrews because he was trying to reform Catholicism, Reformation, right? At first. And then he just, you know, and and praise God, he stood up for justification by uh, grace through faith, you know? Amen. That's awesome. Uh, But he, he, he said, uh, he said uh, man, Hebrews is an awesome book, man. We went verse by verse through this entire book, you know. But anyway, uh, the book of Hebrews has, it, you know, just these wonderful encouragements to continue in the faith and exalting Jesus so we keep our eyes on him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's why there's this, this fixation in the book of Hebrews about how awesome Jesus is. You know, and if you find yourself, you know, Waning in your love for Jesus, read the book of Hebrews, you know. It's one of my favorite books by far. Hebrews, Romans, Revelation, just so many awesome books in the Bible. But you haven't yet resisted the point of shedding your blood and, and striving against sin. Now guess what? These guys were definitely Christians. You know why? He says in, this, in chapter 10 that they did get persecuted. They didn't shed their blood yet. But they were persecuted and even lost their homes, some of them. And we're visiting some of their other believers that were in prison for their faith. I mean, that's more evidence than most people have for their faith, right? You know, losing your homes, visiting other prisoners because of the faith and so forth. But there's a danger because he says not to forsake the assembly of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. Some were getting out of fellowship because they were being persecuted and it was becoming a habit. And he says, rather, he says, get together and exhort and encourage one another. Then he gives the strongest warning in Hebrews chapter 10. I think it's even stronger than Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, verses 26 through 31 about apostasy and going and turning away from Christ back to the law where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, even though you were once sanctified by the blood of the covenant. It's like such a strong warning. So he's warning them not to get the habit of that. And then he goes on to say, you have need of endurance in your faith in chapter 10, verse 36. But in verses 32 through 34, he says, after you're enlightened, you went through a great amount of afflictions. Some of you lost your homes or you lost your property, you know, and Visited those who are in prison, but he says, but you have a lasting hope in heaven, home in heaven. Praise God. You don't say that to non-believers, you know, They're, they got a home in heaven, right? So he's warning believers simply to continue in the faith. And it's important that we understand that they hadn't yet resisted the point of blood. Do you mean to say none of them were martyrs? None that he's addressing because the martyrs he wouldn't be addressing here. They're in heaven. Okay, so of course he's talking about people that are alive and he's talking to believers who are alive. But they hadn't gone to the point of Jesus who went to the cross and Satan tempted him not to. He re- and to the point of shedding his blood, but his was for our sins, amen? Or to other martyrs who were warned to, you know, they better apostatize. If you don't apostatize, you will be killed. Paul was dragging them out of the, before he was the apostle Paul. 
He was Saul. He was dragging them out of their houses, trying to cause them to blaspheme God. Wow. So we know what the early church was going through. He, sat, he stood there when Stephen's clothes were put at his feet when they stoned Stephen to death because he wouldn't turn from the Lord. So it's great pressure upon a lot of the early believers. There's different, different waves of persecution. In the book of Hebrews, there's this temptation to fall back. But God will sometimes use those persecutions to discipline the church too, to get our attentions. Uh, he'll use all different types of uh, discipline to wake us up. In fact, right now, we have new laws potentially being passed in this country. And I'll be talking about uh, the so-called, so-called, you know, Equality Act, whereby churches potentially are forced to hire those who disagree with the Bible and Jesus and, and following his word about what it says regarding homosexuality and are engaging the very activities that we, by you know, we have a, you know, th- you ever hear of the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Third Amendment? You know, we left England because we weren't supposed to be told by the government, you know, what we had, how to worship. Amen? And now that, the, our Constitution, you know, our constitutional, along with the amendments uh, and how it's been understood, is now we may lose, we might have to, wow, what's going to happen there? Well, if that happened, you know what? Guess what? I'd go back to being a towel setter or doing one of the other jobs I did before and still pastoring. I just wouldn't be able to study quite as much and counsel quite, quite as much, but I just nobody just get paid, you know? So I wouldn't be able to do as much, but we would just have volunteers then if we were forced to do something like that. I'm just saying we do something, right? You guys still serve Jesus, amen? We're not gonna compromise. Can't compromise with evil, you know? So it's very important that we understand that there are storm clouds brewing and that the United States, Australia, New Zealand, these countries have been anomalies compared to most of the world in not suffering persecution the way our brothers and sisters in Muslim lands, in communist China, communist Russia, uh, when it was the Soviet Union, uh, so many areas around the world have suffered. And so we think it's normal, you know, to, to, to you know, have this kind of freedom. Pray for your leaders, amen? That's 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, pray for them. And that's when Nero was the leader. <laughs> He's saying to pray for him because you know, I don't like the president. Pray for him. He needs your help, by the way, amen? He needs your prayers. And uh, he's putting all kinds of things in, in, in order to, that are anti-Christ in many ways. So we need to pray for him. But not to get into that too much, but you got to talk about it because it's affecting us. And we're a church family, so if you just stick your head in the ground, and I'll have more to say that about another time. We'll get into scriptures when it has to be, when I do part two of the message on the church, which will be hopefully next week. We'll talk about that a little bit more because, uh, you know, what the church is called to do. Remember we had the church, and it's a building. There's a foundation. Then there's a building. Then there's the top, the roof. We just got through the foundation and just got into the building part, and uh, we'll do that hopefully next week. But it's on my heart to share this message with you. Uh, that, you know, the Lord loves us, so he does discipline us indeed. And I want you now to uh, go back to the scripture in Hebrews. And it says, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons. Okay? We are children of God. And sometimes we forget that God deals with us as children. And sometimes when we go through a trial, we think, I thought I was a Christian. How could I be going through this trial? How come after I became a Christian, I'm going through such hard times? And if you don't 
realize who you are and how God uses trials to perfect you, you could get upset. And many of those who are taught the false gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, that, God, that you're a little God and God wants you to be rich and all this stuff uh, in this world, you know, and that's what it's all about. And those folks get really upset when things don't turn out. And guess what? They won't usually turn out because that's not usually God's will for a person. If they're in a wrong theology, huh, it's going to be even less his will because they, it would confirm their false theology. So it's interesting uh, that he wants us to remember that when we're going through tough times, we're children of God. And that's part of the deal as children of God to go through hard times. You know, I was going to do a message. I was praying about a few different messages today that I've been working on. And one was on suffering. The church is going to suffer. I'll do that eventually too. The, you go through the words, go through your concordance and see how many times the word suffer comes up in the New Testament for Christians. If any of you suffer according to the will of God, First Peter, wow. Man, that's amazing. We, we, we go through things, you know. So, uh, and it, it, but when you're a new Christian, you, you can't make the mistake of thinking believers don't go through things, man. Jesus is our example, right? He was baptized as an example to fulfill all righteousness. And what happened right after he was baptized? He was led in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and tempted by the devil after fasting for 40 days. And these different waves of temptation came upon him. When you become a follower of Jesus... Guess what? We know from Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 14, Matthew chapter 13, that's where you find the parable of the sower in each of those chapters in those, those synoptic gospels. We know that guess what? The enemy attacks your faith right after you. Remember, some believed for a while and then Satan what? He brought in these trials to cause them not to believe anymore. And even before these guys believed for a while, it says they had, they believed for a while and in times of testing or temptation, they fell away. Right before that, there's another the seeds planted in the heart and Satan takes it out so they aren't, won't believe and be saved. So he's very, very active. And the others do believe, but then they fall away. And you guys got to keep in mind, there's a spiritual war. And it's very, very serious. And we have to make sure that we recognize that. And I mean, think of King David. Right when he finds out he's going to become king, what happened to him? Was it like, wow, man, I get to go to the palace. Oh, this is great. Show me around. Show me where the king's suite is. No. And man, he went through 10 years being chased by King Saul. And at times he's like, wait, did, am I really going to be king? I'm sure he went through some trials, like not just like running, but spiritually you read the Psalms. It's like, he's like, sometimes he's like, What's going on, you know? But he continued to pursue the Lord. So I'm trying to let you guys know that he's saying, and I, you know what I have to do? I have to speed up because, man, I'm just, there's a lot of things in my heart. And, uh, <laughs> but he wants you to remember uh, verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, quoting Proverbs. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges everyone whom he receives. Now, this is all connected. You know, it bugs me when some commentators see these as, you know, chapter 11 and it's disjointed from chapter 10. And cha it's like, it fits together so perfectly because chapter 11, he's uh, giving the hall of faith to give them encouragement to say, now look at all these guys. They kept their eyes on the Lord. And then in chapter 12, he's saying, run the race to win. You got those witnesses that are already in the hall of faith and you want to be there too. 
So go forward. Jesus is your example. But remember that you will be disciplined. You're going to go through hard times as children of God. And he says, and I think it's really important right here for the Lord, verse 6, for those who the Lord uh, loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. But notice the first part of that quotation from Proverbs. Uh, in the end of verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Remember, he says not to grow weary in the race. Well, part of the reason that some people grow weary in the race is because when they're disciplined by God, because they've gotten involved in something, they grow weary. Instead of getting right with God, they give up. Sometimes it happens with children when they're disciplined. They just don't want to listen to mom or dad anymore. They grow weary of the discipline. And it's very detrimental, very serious. He doesn't want us to grow weary. He wants us to finish the race. And in Revelation 3, he says to the church at Laodicea, when he addresses the seven churches, he says, they're a lukewarm church, you know? And he says, I would that you were cold or hot, but because thou art lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Wow, that's a scary, he's standing at the door and knock. He's outside the congregation because they're doing their own thing, you know? They're rich, you know, wealthy, and they have need of nothing, they say, but you're blind and miserable, naked and poor. They don't recognize their true spiritual state. And that's how a lot of the churches, like the church of Laodicea, uh, today, today here in America, very affluent, we must have God's blessing. That's why a lot of the Israelites thought in the Old Testament, just because they were doing good, God says, no, you've got to follow me and be serious and not mistake, you know, blessings as though you're constantly under my favor because God could take away those blessings. But if we have blessings and we just meander away from the Lord's will and we grow weary in well-doing, he, how does he get our attention? He spanks us. He speaks to us through his word, but if we get away from his word and we don't abide in his word anymore, that's dangerous not to abide in Christ, then he'll spank you. He'll take you to the woodshed because he loves you. Verse 7. Oh, by the way, in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, you know what he says to them? Same thing he said right here. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And he only chases children. So those were children that had become lukewarm. Because he says that. He goes on to say that. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as what? With sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In those days, today there's some, but in those days it was almost practically unheard of that a father would not discipline his child. It could happen, but it's so normal that he's being, it's not what you typically see. And if you don't discipline your child, you hate him, the scriptures say, right? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Because God spanks his children. And if you've been like, man, I've had a secret life of adultery, and God has never even, I'm just doing great and getting away with it. Nobody knows. And God must really love me because I've never had a hard, barely had a hard times in my life. Well, the Bible says, be not deceived. Adulterers will not inherit God's kingdom. The Bible says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you unless you're reprobate. Uh, if you're not being disciplined at all, that's probably a sign that you're not a child of God. I'm not concerned about the believers that are disciplined as much as I'm concerned about those who profess believers that never get disciplined. A believer that's getting disciplined, praise God, that means a child of God. God's spanking him or her. And God spanks his children. He doesn't spank those who aren't his children. They're under his wrath. Discipline is different than wrath. Wrath is, a, is, is, is directed at those who are not following Christ. 
But if you're following Christ and you're a child of God and then you start to slip away, he'll speak to you. Then he will spank you, as we said. He can do one of three things. He can condone your sin. He won't do that. He's holy. He can condemn you in your sin. He doesn't want to do that. That's why he disciplines you so you won't be condemned. So he could do the third thing, which is correct you. And that's why he disciplines us. He corrects us because he can't condone it. And he corrects you, but you have free will. You can choose to follow him or not. You don't lose your free will as a believer, okay? In fact, everyone here knows that you fight to do the will of God at times. You have to decide to take up your cross daily, amen? So, you know, he, doesn't, he spanks those who are his children. I spanked my children. I don't spank when the neighbor's kid is doing something wrong. I didn't spank the neighbor's kid. Get over here right now. That's not how I talk to my children even. That wasn't that tough. Uh, but I want to whoop you, you know? They, three neighbor kids come with their dads and their shotguns or whatever. You've been spanking my kid, you know? Uh, I didn't live in the South either, by the way. I just grew up here in Southern California. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so you, don't, you spank your own kid because you love him. And God's given you authority. God spanks us because he loves us. Furthermore, verse 9. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Wow. We had earthly fathers, and we respected them. We think back, man, I'm glad my mom and dad loved me enough to spank me or discipline me. Amen? But how much more should we not rather, even more so, respect our Father in heaven who disciplines us so we can what? Live, the father of spirits. He's talking about spiritual life. Okay, he's talking about spiritual life. So you can live as a child of God, you see. Remember the prodigal son? He took off from his father. God disciplined him. And he went so far astray that when he came back, he said, my son was lost, but now he's found. My son was dead. He wasn't physically dead. He was spiritually dead. But he's come to life again. There's the word again there in the Greek, and it means a second time in that context. Very clear. So we have to come back to the father. Now, I don't believe you're spiritually dead every time you sin. Sometimes people say, oh, you sin, you, you die spiritually. You come, you know. No, the Bible, but the Bible does teach, in, say, for instance, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, you know, brethren, uh, you know, he talks about there's, if you see a brother that's sinning a sin unto death, he said, I don't say that you should pray for him, but if a brother doesn't sin a sin, pray unto death, you shall pray and he shall be given life. Wait a minute, how is he given life if it's not unto death? Well, there are those brothers who go into a back sudden state like the prodigal son and are involved in sin can be brought back to life again. There are other brothers that go into a prodigal son state, but they commit total apostasy and they've gone so far, it says brothers, that's believers, that, that they won't come back. He says, I don't say that you should pray for them. They don't say you can't, don't pray for them because sometimes it's hard to know who that is. I prayed for people who've told me that they you know, turned against Christ and did satanic, one specific guy, did satanic rituals to blaspheme Christ when he was in prison because he couldn't find any, and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, he said, because he couldn't find any rituals in the satanic Bible that talked about blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it was other blasphemies, but he couldn't find that one, so he did that. And he said he was in prison, and he lit a, I don't know how he lit a candle in prison, but I knew he was in prison. And he came here, and he'd come and lit for years, even after that, but he didn't believe he could follow the Lord, you know? And he said that when he, did that ritual, he said he felt just a rush leave him and rip him, and it left him in a, this, such a maniacal or mental, bad mental state that he had to go on, you know, 
uh, so-called, you know, medication, not so-called, but medication, uh, so he could not, wouldn't, wouldn't go crazy. And I let him know. I said, well, in my personal p- opinion is when it talks about, you know, this, the, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because he called me up or, you know, and, and, uh, but he, but he did, he was always back and forth whether he wanted to, he'd come. You know, I knew him when I went to a church before I was, long before I was a pastor, as a new Christian when I was 18, 19 years old. Met him in another church. And then when I was pastor, he started visiting here. But I always knew he'd go in and out of Satanism. And when you go in and out of Satanism, that's like, where are you at? You know, to Christianity. And it just, it was heartbreaking though, because I still wanted to try to love this person, hoping there was some kind of, he said, I need a pile of manure, use a different word, this high, if I could get right with God. But I can't because it says in Matthew 12, he that commits, you know, the sin against the Holy Spirit well, well, actually, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 28, 29, too, all sins and uh, blasphemies shall be forgiven the sins of man and with whoever they, you know, and even if they sin against the Son, he said, but he that sins against the Holy Spirit will not receive forgiveness in this world or the world to come. He says, see, there's no way I could get right with God. I said, it's interesting, though, because in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus talks about the same thing and the Pharisees were saying that he was possessed by the devil and they knew, you know, that he had the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus, uh, basically, who was one of the leaders among the Pharisees, says, we know that you're from God. No one can do these signs unless he's been from God. So they were, they were kicking against the pricks, as Paul was for a while, and rejecting the light. So he says, walk the light while you have the light. Time's coming when you, so you can become children of God. Time's coming when the light's not going to be here. They had opportunity. But he says to them in Romans chapter 12, he says, when he says that they committed the unpardonable sin, he goes on to say, either make the tree good or evil. He gives them opportunities still. That's interesting. I pointed that out to this guy. I go, look, even after Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and warned them after they said he was doing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub and calling the Holy Spirit the devil, he said, make the tree good or evil. What does that mean? That means they can still turn. But guess what? There comes a point where your heart gets so hardened against the Lord and so dark where you don't desire to turn. You harden your heart, the Bible says, we don't hear his voice anymore. That means his voice was there, and you stopped hearing it. And then there's come a time when the Lord says, I know he's not going to hear you. He still talks for a while. Then it's just over because you're not going to come to him. And that's why I believe that's an un, that becomes an unpardonable sin. But evidently, when you go through Hebrews 12, he says right after they did it, he says either make the tree good or evil. And they have an opportunity to still get right with him for who knows how long. So if somebody ever has a concern, did I commit the unpardonable sin? If you have a heart toward God and you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say absolutely not because uh, your heart is inclined to seek him. And the reason that sin, I believe, becomes unpardonable personally is because your heart becomes so hardened that you'll never seek the Lord again. And uh, because Jesus, the Bible says, died for all sins and the sins that don't get forgiven. And that's ultimately that you're keeping the very Holy Spirit that draws you to Jesus to receive forgiveness, you're resisting and rejecting and hating upon. So how can you be forgiven if you won't even respond to the agent who's trying to bring you back to the Father? You understand? So that's why that, I believe, is exemplified. Now, it's interesting. I've got to be careful here. I'm glad I don't have 20 pages of notes because I'm going off on things I didn't imagine talking about. But uh, it's important here that you see verse 9 Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, and we shall much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live. And by the way, when he talks about a brother, and now he's talking about the Father of spirits, he's talking about spiritual life. 
He's contrasting the physical fathers with our physical life where they discipline us with the spirit, which the Father in heaven and how we're children of his. And we want to be spiritual children. And when it says brethren, you can sin a sin, talks about sin and sin unto death. Uh, the, the, the context are a spiritual life. You know how I know that? Because the context is he that has the son has the life right before that. He that does not have the son does not have the life. He's talking about spiritual life. And then he's talking about life and death. And he, in 1 John 3, 14, he says those who believe in Jesus have come out of death into life. He's talking about spiritual death and spiritual life, you know. So uh, it's imperative. And these warnings are here. Again, these are the means by which God uses in his word to bring about perseverance. That's why it blows me away that people ignore them. These are the very things that God uses to get us to persevere. Now, it's interesting here because there's examples throughout Scripture. Uh, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and some of them are going to church, and they would mix their water down with wine, or wine down with, with water. And when you would take the Lord's Supper, you know, Sometimes, you know, it wasn't necessarily always just supplied by the church, right? People would bring uh, a little wine that was mixed down with water, and some of them were getting drunk. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, earlier in this epistle, don't be deceived, drunkards will not inherit God's kingdom. And some were getting together, and they were drinking too much. That can happen. You've got to be very careful. Oh, I can have a little bit of wine, and all of a sudden you're drunk. And it's like, the Lord's like, oh, you know. So he says, be sober, be vigilant. If you obviously the devil walks out as a roaring lion, seek someone to devour. And some of them were getting drunk. And they weren't respectful of other members of the fellowship. They were hoarding their food. They weren't sharing. And he says in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Sleep means some of you are dead. <whistles> but we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Wow. Why are we disciplined by the Lord? But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be what? Condemned along with the world. Isn't that awesome? He disciplines us because he loves us because he's a father of spirits. And he wants us to live, continue to have a spiritual life and not be condemned with the world. Amen? So if you're going through something, it's because God loves you so much and he doesn't want you to grow weary and go astray and go back to a life of, you know, unbelief. Or a life where you profess to know him, but by your works you deny him. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. So this is very, very serious. And by the way, it shows you that condemnation is real. That a believer could go into condemnation. And that he disciplines the believer to avert that. To keep us from choosing a life of rebellion. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he directs it to holy brethren. And in verse 12, he says... You know, see to it, brethren, that there not be any, any of you a hardened heart that falls away from the living God. Don't harden your heart. You can harden your heart. You can choose to harden your heart when you're disciplined and grow weary and not realize, wow, God's doing this because he loves me. Just get all frustrated because you're limited in your view. And when you discipline children, sometimes they're, some children are very wise. They were like, yeah, I shouldn't have blew it. Man, I can't believe I blew it. And they have like a, a godly type of repentance. They're sorry because they blew it and they get right. Other kids, they harden their hearts against their parents and they're just upset and cry because they got caught and they can't wait to try. I'm going to try another way. And you have to make sure you don't do that. You got to make sure you fear the Lord. 
And condemnation is a, a real possibility that God is averting there for them. In fact, look at verse 34 of chapter 11. Uh, he goes on to say in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 34, after he says he disciplines you so you won't be condemned with the world, verse 34 says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. I mean, don't even, don't even have a, a feast of charity if you guys are going to be getting drunk. You're getting better for the worse, as he says earlier. You're doing more harm than good. So that you will not come together for what? Judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So Paul gives some examples uh, to the Corinthians. He gives himself an example. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. And sandwiched between chapter 10, where he says there's Old Testament examples that God gave, look at chapter 9, verse 27, or verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Chapter 10, verse 24. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then, then, uh, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. The Olympics of those days. That's where the Olympics were going on, right? Uh, but we, and imperishable, we're receiving the crown of life. Verse 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. You know what Paul did? Do you do this? He's supposed to follow Paul's example. He beats his body down. I'm not saying literally flogging himself or flagellating himself as the, the monks did, Luther did and others, but he's speaking metaphorically. He's not literally boxing physically, but he's denying himself. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you take up your cross, right? Daily, deny yourself and follow me, amen? That's to be Christian. And Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 and 13. Brethren, we are not brethren. We are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, crucify the deeds of the body, you shall live. As many as are led by the Spirit, the very next verse, are the children of God. It's talking about spiritual sonship again. We have to crucify the flesh. Paul denied the flesh, the desire to crave and follow and do evil things. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be times where you crave to do evil, but you have to overcome those temptations. I'm not, I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm talking about the trajectory you're on. Nobody's going to follow the Lord perfectly, uh, but sin should be the exception, not the rule in your life. Amen? Rebellion should be the exception and it shouldn't even, we shouldn't be, seek to be sinless. We're not gonna hap- that's not going to happen until Christ returns. James 3.1, we all stumble in many ways. None of us are perfect. First John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you need to stay on the narrow road. That's the racetrack he's put before us. Jesus is the narrow road. I'm the way, he's the way. The truth and life, amen? So when you're on that road, and as you're on that road, you, Paul beat his body down. So after he preached to others, he himself would not become disqualified from the race. The Greek word there means rejected, adakamos. And when Paul uses it throughout his epistles, it's always of utter rejection regarding salvation. In fact, we know he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that's when he says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Christ is in you unless you are adakamos. It means without Christ. A.T. Robertson, the greatest Baptist scholar uh, uh, of, in, in American history, uh, perhaps the best Greek scholar, I'm sorry, not best scholar, I'm saying best Greek scholar, uh, best Greek scholar in American history. He says his word pictures in the Greek, which is amazing. He says, if Paul, the, her- the greatest herald of the Christian faith, was concerned that he had to beat his body down, I'm paraphrasing him, 
so he wasn't rejected then, how much more should we, ordinary Christians, right, make sure that we're serious about finishing the race? Amen? That's serious stuff. Now, he disciplines us. In 1 Corinthians, there's a guy that's having sex with his mom. 1 Corinthians 5, it's gross. And Paul says, I've had the word of Satan so the spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. That's discipline. God, God loved that guy, and he went into sexual relationship with his mother, his father's wife, it says. It might have been his stepmother. Whoa, man, what is going on there? Paul said, get that guy out of the church. He's going to leaven the whole church. In other words, he's going to send a message that if you, you could do anything, basically, and grace covers it. That's not the grace message Paul had. It was falsely being reported that Paul was saying, and Paul said falsely slandered. He was being slandered. That's not what we're teaching, that you can sin so grace will more abound. That wasn't the message. The grace of God, grace instructs us to live holy lives. The grace of God has appeared in all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, Titus chapter 2, amen, and live soberly in this world. Now, it's interesting. He hands him over to Satan, he says, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. Now, that guy who's having committing fornication with his mom, according to chapter 6, the very next chapter, is not entering the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. So he's not saying, kill him so he can go to heaven. No, he's saying, don't be deceived. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards will not inherit God's kingdom. Don't be deceived. Well, then how's he, what's he had him over for? Discipline. So he'll repent. So he'll get spanked and he'll be corrected and come back to the faith. We, and he does, by the way. 2 Corinthians 2.11, he talks about this gentleman and how he, the church now was being too lenient, too liberal. Now they're being too strict and they're not loving this guy. When he came back, he says to forgive him and confirm your love to him and, and, and comfort him. He told them to, them to do three things. That means if someone comes back, you're just like, don't have a holy attitude. Don't be like the older brother, right? Can't believe he just, you know. No, he's back. Praise God like the angels when someone repents. Same chapter, Luke 15, when the prodigal son comes back. So there's discipline. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, his son in the faith, he says to keep a good conscience, right? And he talks about how he needs to uh, hold to, fight the good fight of faith, hold to his faith. Because he says there's certain men like Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, who have shipwrecked their faith. And then you know what he said he did? So it didn't mean they didn't have faith, you know? They shipwrecked their faith. You don't say, well, they really never had faith. No. If I find pieces of a ship and somebody says they never really existed, I'm like, no. It was shipwrecked. The ship existed. They had faith. They shipwrecked his faith. And that's why Timothy's told to hold on to his faith. And guess what? It says of them that Paul handed them over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. You don't hand non-believers or the world over to Satan. They're already under Satan's power. Amen. When you excommunicate someone, when someone belongs to Christ and is part of the church, Going to church doesn't do it, but being a member of the body of Christ, you are, it says we're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1, 11 through 13. So when, and the church isn't the kingdom, but it's part of the kingdom. And when they're part of the church and they're part of the body of Christ, they have protection from Satan's power. They're sanctified, they're growing. But now if they're in rebellion and teaching false teaching, and some of these guys, they were teaching the resurrection already came to pass and were overthrowing the faith of some. He has over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Excommunicating someone of the church is, one of, is the church's last, you know, word to the apostate. First, he warns them. You bring one with you. You bring, you know, or two, one or two with you. Then you bring it before the church. And the church says, hey, you can't be here if you're not following. Of course, that's under attack now with possibly the Equality Act. Can you imagine? 
where this is all headed. That's why we've got to be in prayer, guys. Pray, pray, pray. So he's excommunicated, and Hymenaeus and Philetus are, and their faith has become uh, shipwrecked, but that they might learn not to blaspheme, they can come back. Unfortunately, a couple years later, Paul writes the second, second Timothy in chapter 2. We don't know what happened to Philetus, but Hymenaeus is mentioned again. He's still a false teacher. And that's where it says he's overthrowing the faith of some. So he didn't respond to the discipline, okay? Because we have free will. We can harden our hearts and grow weary. We can, that's sad because when you get caught up in bad... More, Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, right after chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, where he says... Uh, the Spirit speaks explicitly and a lot of times some will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. A little bit later in that same chapter, he says, watch your life and your doctrine. You've got to watch your behavior and what you believe. The Bible says if you do not hold to the teachings, first John, or Second John uh, chapter, it's only, you know, one chapter, Second John chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, that those who don't hold to Jesus Christ, who he is, the true Jesus in contrast to the false Gnostic Jesus in that epistle, uh, they don't have God, you know? You have to hold to the true Jesus. So what you believe matters. You can't believe that Jesus was just some guy who taught good, good things. No, you have to understand he's God in the flesh and that he died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. Amen? You have to understand the gospel, accept Jesus. Now, you may not understand, the, you're not going to understand the fullest of the gospel when you first get saved, but when the enemy moves in, he tries to get you to believe in a different Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11, you better beware. But also your lifestyle. You can't be living. A, so doctrine is spoken of in Hymenaeus and Philetus. Lifestyle is being spoken of with the fornicator in 1 Corinthians 5. So you got to watch your life. Paul says, watch your life and your doctrine. And so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. Now, it's like we don't save ourselves. But, well, how does he mean you save yourself? He means save yourself, meaning you'll be continuing to put your trust in Jesus. Amen whose blood saves you because you've gone, you've gone to the refuge, you, the one who saves you. You're in the position where you're continuing the faith. So Hymenaeus, there's no evidence that he ever came back around. It's really heartbreaking. And the Lord disciplined him. Now the Lord disciplines, does he discipline sons or non-sons? Sons. Okay, he had them over to Satan. And then what it means is when he's out of the church, now he's back in Satan's domain. Amen. He's under the Satan's kingdom again, the world system. And hopefully he'll wake up. The point is, is the guy that gets destruction of the flesh, that could have been a venereal disease, you know? Uh, but ultimately it means, I believe, God could use all those kinds of things to bring him up to where he would hate his sin and turn from the flesh back to the things of the Lord because Paul says the sins of the flesh, you can't practice them and enter the kingdom of God. Uh, with Hymenaeus, he simply needed to submit to apostolic authority in the first century and get right with God. So God does do discipline as many as I love. Do you think he loves you? He does. Are you putting your trust in Jesus? Have you received Christ? As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. You're a child of God. Well, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He rebukes us. He speaks, right? And then he spanks. I rebuke and chasten. That's what any godly father does. They speak to the children in love. And the child continues to rebel. They lovingly spank him. Amen? He does that. Now, I love Lamentations 3.33. It's probably my second or third favorite verse in Lamentations. For he does not willingly afflict the sons of men. Wait! 
He doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. Why does he afflict them if he doesn't do it willingly? He doesn't, the point is, is I don't willingly want to spank Josiah. But I still do, you know. No, not really. But I don't willingly spank my kids, you know, uh, when, I w- when I would spank them when they were younger. In, in the sense that I don't want to, like, I can't wait till I see my kids. I can't wait to spank them. It's going to be so fun. No. It, in fact, the author of Hebrews says it's painful for the moment when you're doing it. It is. Remember the dads that say, it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It's just going to hurt in different spots. It's going to hurt my heart. It's going to hurt your rear end, you know. So he doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. He doesn't, he, it's not his heart to, but guess what? He's given us this thing called free will to where we can relate to him and he can, we can respond to him and love him back. He didn't make us robots, but he lets us know you're headed toward destruction. You can be in this eternal love relationship with me or not. And, and he disciplines us. Psalm 94, 12 says, Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, and uh, teach from your law. Love that. You're, you're blessed when you're disciplined by the Lord. Think about that. When you're going through trials and you're like, what am I going through? You're blessed. And not every trial is discipline, okay? But every discipline can be a trial. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We go through things. Now, when somebody's going through something, oh, God's disciplining them. They don't know that. Remember Job's friends? He must have been off in some way, Job. He's the most blameless man on earth. Although he still grew through his trials and became gold and he still learns things. But that wasn't the primary reason that Job went through what he went through. So we have to be really careful when someone goes through things. Oh, they must have done something bad and God's spanking them. That's ridiculous. That's not a mature understanding of Scripture. Although, guess what? Sometimes it is. We just want to make sure that we're merciful, loving, and prayerful for people. Amen? So many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Who does he deliver? The righteous. Those who seek him. Psalm 71.20. Though you have shown me many troubles and misfortunes, you will revive me once again. Even from the depths of the earth, you will bring me back up. I love that. Proverbs 24, 16. For though the righteous may fall seven times, he gets up, but the wicked stumble in bad times. So we want to make sure we go through bad times that we don't continue to stumble. You go through, you get spanked, you go through something, man, get up and go forward in the Lord. And there's two great examples in the Old Testament, great examples, that of discipline and response to discipline one negative, one positive. And I'll start with a negative example because I'd like to end on a positive note, you know. Uh, and we still got, we used to go to 11. We go to 1045 now. But uh, it's interesting when you think about this is, and this was one of the, my favorite kings for a while. When you first start reading a story, you're like, I love this king, you know. But then he's not my favorite king, one of my favorite kings, because he just blew it. And that's King Asa, okay? And King Asa was a great king early on in his life and did wonderful things for the Lord. He loved the Lord. In fact, uh, scriptures tell us, and if you want to, though, you can go to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to move pretty fast, though. 2 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Lord sent him a prophet to warn him but also to give him promises, okay? And in chapter 15 of 2 Corinthians, verse 2, it says the Lord, the prophet said to him, the Lord is with you when you are with him. That's a beautiful promise. 2 Chronicles, chapter 15, verse 2. 
Uh, did I say Corinthians? You're like, wow, for Second Corinthians talks about King Asa? No, sorry about that. Uh, Second, Corinthians, Second Chronicles chapter 15. We're just in Corinthians. It's quoted Second Corinthians 13, 5 earlier. So it's messing me up. But Second Chronicles 15, 2. The Lord is with you when you are with him. Wow, what a wonderful promise. Right? If you seek him, he will be found by you. That's a beautiful promise too, amen? Reminds me of another passage. If you, when, uh, Jeremiah, when you seek the Lord with all your heart, he'll be found by you, right? Uh, if, you, when you, if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But then he warns him, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you, okay? He gives him a clear warning, okay? Just stay with the Lord. Why would you want to go anywhere? Like Peter says, where would I go when Jesus says we two go away? John 6, 6, 6, you know? Many of his disciples followed him no longer. Jesus said, will you two go away? Peter's like, where will I go? You have the words of eternal life. That should be our attitude. It should be unthinkable, you know? And when you're walking with Jesus and you're excited about it, you love him, you, you can't even comprehend, how could somebody not want to follow Jesus, you know? But you go through some hard times and things can become a real struggle. And you know what? He says, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And, and there's beautiful promises. I love the promises in Hebrews 13, 5. You know, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Or Hebrews, or Deuteronomy, the first time that comes up is Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, you know. And that's a beautiful promise all the way around. You know, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified of them, you know. He says, he's talking about bringing them into the promised land. So it's a picture of the believer going to heaven. And you ever go through the promised land, he warns them to put their trust in him. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Now that sometimes is twisted to mean, oh, you can become an idolater and a rebel and he won't forsake you. No, because a few verses later in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verses 16 through 18, he says it's going to come a time when you prostitute yourself and you turn away from the one true God and you worship idols. You prostitute and become an idolater, a devil worshiper, basically, because Paul said behind these idols are, are demons, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says, you will break my covenant. And then he says, and you will forsake me and I will forsake you. Right after he said, I'll never leave you, forsake you. Wait, did he break his promise? No. Who's he making the promise to? Those who put their trust in him. Then he spells out the covenant, but if you forsake me, he says, you break my covenant in that same passage. You forsake me, then I will forsake you. You don't just isolate a verse and say, oh, I can do whatever I want. No, you have to put all the verses together. It's very, very clear. So King Asa, Asa is told, you know what? Guess what, you know? Lord's with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he'll be, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So he's got this promise and warning. That's what the Bible is full of, promise and warning, you know? And I love the warnings as much as I love the promise. You know why? Because the warnings help me stay focused on the promises. Because it just makes me want to just stay, stay with Jesus close to him, amen? And I just think this is a powerful teaching of discipline because Paul when he says in, to the Corinthians when he warns them that they're being spanked by the Lord so they won't be condemned with the world and he gives himself as an example that he beats his own body down in other words he spanks himself in a sense Paul says to the Corinthians judge yourself so you won't be judged when he's talking about the Lord's Supper just before he talks about not being condemned with the world guess what Paul says I beat my body down so I'm not you know I'm not a docomos without Christ Christless basically he finished, he's, that's the context of the race. We're talking about the race in Hebrews chapter 12. But I'm covering a lot of scriptures instead of just the first four, which we'll get into another time. Uh, and just more, be, hone in more on those verses. But this is powerful, guys, because King Asa's on the race. He has a great start. I love his start. 
It's like, wow, if a king ever had a great start. This is one of the, the scriptures speak more highly of him than almost any other king in Israel. Put it, you can rank him like fourth or fifth as far as the praise you see of this king from the word of God. And uh, he's an interesting king because this prophet lets him know this. And guess what he begins to do? He begins to seek the Lord. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. His relationship with God just blooms because he begins to cry out to the Lord. And chapter 14, verse 7, it says, uh, Second Chronicles, the land is ours, he says, King Asa says, because we sought the Lord. He recognizes. Because, underscore this. This is the key by way of application. You need to seek the Lord. If you seek the Lord, he'll be found by you. King Asa says, the land is still ours, meaning the promised land. Now, this is after they've gotten the promised land. Because we have sought the Lord, our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace. So they have the land, and they have peace in their lives because they're seeking the Lord. Amen? This is heavy. In chapter 14, verse 11, it says, Asa cried to the Lord. There it is again. He cried to the Lord, his God. O Lord, there is none like you to help. Help us, O Lord, our God. For we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. This one, there was an Ethiopian war machine coming against him. He cried out to the Lord. It looked like they were going to be destroyed. And God delivered them. King Asa had a great start. In fact, it's interesting. Here's a divine commentary on him. Uh, what the scriptures say in chapter 17, verse 6 of King Asa, his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Non-believers can't walk in the ways of the Lord. It says, furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah, these idolatrous poles with these different like totem poles almost with idols that were put up for worship. The divine commentary again on King Asa in chapter 14, verse 2, Asa did good and, and right in the sight of the Lord his God. None of us does good on our own, but... He was under God's grace. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherim, these poles, these false gods. He was walking with God. In fact, you know what? He even removed, it says, the queen mother, which was from her throne because she had put up an Asherim pole. And that happened to be his grandmother. Sorry, Grandma, I'm removing you from your exalted position because you are not worshiping Yahweh. This guy was jealous for the things of God. Okay, really, really heavy. Uh, that's in chapter 15, verse 16. He took her out of her exalted position. And by the way, he took down that pole that she had it set up for worship, brought it to the Kidron Valley, pummeled it, smashed it, and crushed it, and burned it. And what became the valley, it was the Valley of Hinnom, the Kidron Valley, which became Gehenna. That, and that's the term that Jesus used for that constant smoke coming up as a picture of hell. In 2 Chronicles 15, 17, it states of King Asa, quote, Asa's heart was fully devoted all his days. Wow. His heart was fully devoted to the Lord, it says, all his days. That's until the very end. And that's why, man, even when you've run the race, you get really, really old, like me, you have to stay on the path. You have to continue to follow the Lord, man. King Asa's an older guy now. And he's been worshiping the Lord for some time. And it says he served the Lord with all of his heart fully. I mean, that's not said of many kings when you go through the kings. And he had a great track record. But guess what? He was rewarded with peace. But some things happened. He began, he made an alliance with the evil king of Syria, an idolater. Instead of crying out to the Lord, instead of seeking the Lord anymore. He stopped seeking the Lord. He stopped praying. He stopped crying out to God. And after 20 years of prosperity, we don't know why. 
And sometimes I'm like, I wonder why, Lord, you didn't tell us what got his heart off. But then I thought about it, because I've taught on this before, and this is just part of a teaching. It's just supplemental to the bigger teaching. I thought, you know what? I'm glad. Just like we don't know exactly what Paul's thorn was, and that helps us because we can apply a lot of situations. I'm glad you don't tell us exactly why, because I think in your wisdom why you did that was because it could be anything that gets your heart off of the Lord. Amen? And he stops following the Lord because they have such prosperity and you have to watch out. Don't, give, don't let me be too poor, right, Lord? Because what? I could be tempted to steal. But don't give me too much because I could forget you. And it can be easy to forget God. And he had great prosperity. So that may be it. I don't know if that was it or not. But he did stop following the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles 16.10, we read that he sent him another prophet. And that prophet, this prophet, re, you know, warned him again like the first prophet reiterated that warning. That you, because what he did when he made an alliance with this evil king, he stole money from the temple treasury to bribe him. And then it says he oppressed some of the people. Like that wicked servant. Who's a wise and, you know, faithful, faithful and wise steward? If that faithful and wise steward begins to get drunk with the drunkards and beat the maidservants, he'll come at a time when he's not ready and slice him in pieces and put him with the unbelievers. And he went from being a, a great king, and then it's sad because he was oppressing some of the people. And then you know what the Lord did? He, he wouldn't repent after this. You know what he did to that prophet? Threw him in prison. He didn't want to hear the... You see, when it says to make sure you don't tune out the Lord when he disciplines you, he was tuning out the Lord. And he wasn't responding to him. But now he threw that prophet in prison. So he had wars. Gets, you know... The prophet comes, then he has wars, and then you know what happens? It says the Lord gave him a severe foot disease. Severe. So man, he gets the first prophet saying, if you forsake him, he's going to forsake you. The second prophet comes, and he throws him in prison. Then he gets all these wars. There's all these things God's using to discipline him and get his attention. He speaks to him twice, and then he loses peace and has wars. And that's what happens when you turn away from the Lord. When you turn out the Lord, you will have wars in your life with other people around you. If you're not putting Christ first in your life and abiding in him and hearing his word, you're going to find yourself at friction with brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to find yourself at friction with people that you'd normally not be at friction with. And by way of application, that you might need to say, hey, wait, have I kind of tuned out Lord God and, and I'm just watching way too much TV and watching the wrong kind of things on television or Netflix or whatever and just not really looking at the light of the word but loving the light of my television more than the light of God's word? You know, serious stuff. And all of a sudden you end up not praying and you're not walking in the spirit and you're in the flesh and all of a sudden flesh begets more flesh and all of a sudden you're having turmoil and wars in your life and where the flesh is dominating you and you're losing that war and it could manifest a lot of different ways. And King Asa knew that and, or didn't know that. He continued and he gets this very, very serious foot disease and what happens? Do you remember what happened to him? Look at Second Chronicles 16, 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not what? Seek the Lord, but the physicians. Nothing wrong with seeking physicians as long as they're not using witchcraft and stuff, which some of them were in those days. But you need to seek the Lord first. Amen? You need to make sure you're seeking the Lord. And not only the physicians. You're going through something, cry out to God. 
but he wouldn't turn to the Lord. And the context is, in the 39th year of his reign, he got this severe foot disease, yet even in his disease, the point is, even when this happened to him, he still didn't seek the Lord. You can't say, well, God always brings people back to him. No, not always. Because God doesn't make you a robot. You know? We don't believe in unconditional election, that God unconditionally chooses just a few and he wants to damn the rest and that's his plan. No, we believe that God wills that all would be saved. Amen? Come acknowledge the truth. And when you get saved, you don't lose your ability to turn and relate to the Lord or not relate to him. And King Asa is a great picture. And remember, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he gives himself as an example, he goes on in chapter 10 to give the Israelites an example, as an example. And how even though they were baptized in the Sea of Moses and drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ, and, you know, and ate the man and all that, that with many of them, God was not pleased and wiped them out in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And then he says in verse 6, he gave them as examples for us. In chapter 11, he reiterates that again. He gave them as examples for us so that we wouldn't fall in the same way they fell. They're given. Not as Paul gives himself an example. I beat my body down so after I preach the gospel to others, I myself would not be a dachamas, condemned. But guess what? These guys are given examples too that you need to finish your race. Amen? And their race was to the promised land. And guess what? We're in a race. And part of that race is discipline. God will spank us. He'll let us go through things. First uh, Peter chapter 4. Judgment begins at the household of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, where will the righteous, uh, or the wicked are, are the righteous scarcely saved? What will happen to the wicked in the day of judgment? We need to make sure we understand that God is serious and we're in this race. And sometimes we get spanked, but it's for good reason because he loves us. And then you read the very next verse, verse 13. Two years later, he dies. Doesn't say he repented. In fact, the emphasis is even after this, he still wouldn't turn. So the Lord is faithful and he won't forsake you if you're faithful, listen to Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. That's a beautiful promise. He will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever. I love that. But the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. It's a beautiful promise. But the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. You have to choose to trust the Lord. Amen. Proverbs 29, 1. What happened to Asa? King Asa. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof. And he got reproved a few times at least, just the ones that are recorded. Who knows how many more times? A man who hardens his neck, means he's God's saint turn, but he's refusing to seek him now. He hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken off beyond remedy. It's heartbreaking, but it's true. And you don't want to be one of those people. And right now you're being spoken to by the word of God. So you'll heed, heed, heed the word of God, Amen. Don't fall for a phony theology that says you can live in rebellion to the Lord and be an apostate and still enter the kingdom of God. Don't do that. And that book of Hebrews actually warns about that. Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5 and 6, three different times the apostle of grace warns, don't be deceived. Those who live like this, practice these things or do these things will not inherit God's kingdom. In other words, you could be deceived. Even the first century, that deception was going around. Today, it's like accepted Bible doctrine. You can live in rebellion to God and still enter God's kingdom. It's like, what in the world is going on? Are people not reading their Bibles? You know, it's heartbreaking. Now, go back now to Hebrews chapter 12. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. Wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. 
For they disciplined us, that's our earthly fathers, for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may, be, uh, be, we may share in his what? Holiness. So we'll be holy, share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, that's for sure, but sorrowful because it's painful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amen. That's why we discipline our children. That's why God disciplines us. Verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. He's like a coach, the author of Hebrews, right? Because how about running the race to win? Stay in the race, right? Uh, and make straight paths for your feet so that the, the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that's the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, he just said he disciplines you so you'll be partaker of his holiness. Same Greek word, hagias, is used here. Pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if you don't pursue holiness and seek him, right, and you run the other way, you won't see the Lord. It's very, very clear. That's the context here. There's salvation. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. So a root of bitterness can come up because you don't regard your discipline and what you're going through as from the Lord because he loves you. That's why he says, don't forget the, the admonition that disciplines us as children. That's why it's so critical you understand that you are a child of God right now. You have life right now. If you die right now, you're going to be with the Lord. And when he disciplines you because he loves you, he wants you to stay on the path, amen? So you understand that you're a child of God. And... You don't want a root of bitterness to spring up to you where you become unforgiving, unmerciful, bitter toward God, bitter toward people. Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, neither shall your Father in heaven forgive you. You have to keep, by way of application, listen, apply this to your life, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. If you had fallen into sin, what should you do? Confess your sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Amen? So make sure you, you, you confess your sins. Uh, try to avoid sin. John says, I write these things that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So seek to not sin. But if you fall short, confess it before the Father and get right. Amen? Proverbs talks about those who hide their sins will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes his sin, he will be blessed. So see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You can come short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up you causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Wow. Found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Do you know why? Well, I thought you said if you come back, he'll receive you. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast away. That's what he says. But he wasn't sorry for his sin. He was sorry for another reason. Why? He lost his birthright. He was ticked off. Just like Judas. Judas was remorseful. He, he went out and hung himself. But the Bible talks about two types of repentance, you know. The repentance that's unto life and the repentance unto death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. But it says worldly sorrow leads to death. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Worldly repentance is where you're just upset because you got caught. Godly repentance is, man, I'm sorry, God, I blew it. I want to be right with you. You want to make sure there's godly repentance. And you know what? I have some stuff on King David I wanted to share. So instead of having just one message on this, I guess I'm going to have two. And it's good because the good ending will be next week. No, because David and his repentance, and not just David, but there's many scriptures I want to share with you uh, along those lines because I have scriptures of David's prayer life and stuff. But what's the application here for us, guys? Number one, you're in a race and you have to finish it. Amen? Stay in the race, okay? Number two, recognize that when God disciplines you, it's because you're a child and don't get bitter. Amen? Amen? And also, number three, you need to make sure, King, did King ask to have a good start? His life was characterized by seeking God. And he said, we, we seek, he goes, we have peace because we've been seeking the Lord. But he, what in the world? He knew the teaching. Now he's not seeking the Lord and he has wars. Brothers and sisters, seek the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Do it when things are good. And when things are bad and you're going through rough times, cry out to the Lord, amen? Do you seek the Lord? Pray. Seek him, amen? Number four, don't seek out worldly things and ignore the Lord. Now the Lord gives, has given us means, medicine, He's given the leaves of the nations, of the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations in the book of Revelation. It's talking about New Jerusalem, but he's already done that now to a degree, right? We have medicines and so forth. Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach ailments, a little, the Greek word means puny amount, uh, for your frequent stomach ailments. So you mix the water. could be deadly. And uh, Timothy's probably like, I'm not going to drink any alcohol at all. But you had to. He's saying drink a little bit, you know, appears to be what's going on there. And you know what? Luke was a doctor, he was a physician, and it sets that in a, po a positive way, okay? Praise God for doctors, you know, but you don't, say, you don't just ignore the Lord. And now he gets a severe foot disease, and he doesn't seek the Lord, but just the doctors. Make sure that you don't go to the world to fix all your hurts, and make sure that anything you use in the world is not unscriptural, amen, unbiblical, and make sure you seek God first and his kingdom and his righteousness, amen, so don't harden your hearts, and let's keep seeking the Lord. Are you going through things? Seek the Lord. I love it. He cried out to the Lord. I love what he was early on. It breaks my heart when I read his story. I don't want to see that happen to anybody. Amen? Lord, Lord more so, because you're his children. You're just my brothers and sisters. But I say to my brothers and sisters, please keep looking at our Father and looking to his heart and his word. He loves you. He's for you. But guess what? We are being tested, and we're in a race, and let's run to finish and let's keep our eyes, number five, fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. He's gone before us and he, he won the race and we are overcomers in him because he died for us. He was buried. He rose again. Amen. And the race that we're in is not a literal marathon where we're running physically, but we're, it's this simple. Jesus said, he that endures the end shall be saved. Endures in what? Endures in trusting Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. You keep your faith in him and his gospel, amen? You keep just following him. You stay on the straight and narrow road, amen? You just stay on that race, in that race, because Jesus said last days the hearts of many would grow cold, okay? want to make sure that doesn't happen to us. That's in that context where he said those that endure to the end will be saved.
Can we pass the cup and the bread out, please? Thank you guys so much, man. Can we all please stand?